Uber says, look, we're not a transportation company, we're a technology company, and we just have developed technology that helps you know, independent drivers find customers, basically. From the perspective of the worker, an employee is entitled to have the company pay the company's share of Social Security, be covered by unemployment insurance. They are entitled to have expenses reimbursed. They're entitled to minimum wage in general. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites, and uh, I also practice law. And before we introduce today's topic, I'd like to take a moment to thank Clio, our sponsor. Clio is an online practice management program for lawyers. You can find out a lot more about Clio at www.goclio.com. Well, uh, since its founding in 2009, Uber has become uh, arguably the most well-known and certainly the, the most well-funded uh, ride-sharing service in the world, uh, sometimes regarded as the cab you hail with an app. Uber connects private for-hire drivers with riders via their mobile devices. There's no need for talking or carrying your wallet. The app takes care of everything. Uh, and it even encourages uh, kind of self-policing and self-rating by allowing both drivers and riders to rate each other. Uh, at the same time, uh, not everybody has been so enamored with Uber. There has been litigation uh, growing on many fronts. There are lots of questions about the extent to which Uber should or should not be regulated. Uber has, in particular, recently fallen under scrutiny for its the way it, it classifies uh, its drivers as independent contractors. Uh, and uh, it, in some cases, it's been accused of violating even local regulations for taxi services. Uh, some of the most visible challengers to Uber's uh, ride-sharing service are now the taxicab companies themselves and some of the taxi drivers who are crying foul in major metropolitan areas. So we're going to talk about some of the legal issues surrounding Uber today with two guests and uh, let me introduce them and bring them uh, into the conversation. First of all, let me introduce Jonathan Handel. Jonathan is a transactional entertainment and technology lawyer at Troy Gold. In addition, he's an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California Gold School of Law, as well as a contributing editor for The Hollywood Reporter. He's also the author of several books, including the New Zealand Hobbit Crisis. Welcome to the show, Jonathan Handel. Bob, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us today. And also joining us today is Matthew Feeney. Matthew Feeney is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Uh, before that, Matthew worked at Reason Magazine as an assistant editor of Reason.com. He's also been uh, working. He's also worked at the American Conservative, the Liberal Democrats, and the Institute of Economic Affairs. Matthew is a dual British-American citizen, received his, both his uh, bachelor's degree and his master's in philosophy from the University of Reading in England. Uh, he has uh, written uh, and commented uh, extensively uh, in recent months on Uber. Uh, welcome to the show, Matthew. Well, thanks for having me. 
Well, um, maybe the best place to start here, uh, th- there's a lot going on, a lot I'd like to talk about. I, I, I've been traveling a lot lately myself, and I, I, I've discovered that uh, if I'm ever in a, in a taxi cab and, and I want to kick up a, a conversation with my driver, the best thing I can do is uh, ask the driver what he or she thinks about Uber, and uh, I, will, I will then get an earful uh, all the way to the airport or wherever I'm, I'm going. But uh, the drivers themselves, in some cases, uh, haven't been uh, entirely thrilled with uh, the way they're dealt with by Uber. The, in California, uh, recently, there was a, uh, an action by a, a driver who uh, brought a matter trying to uh, obtain uh, some of, uh, recover some of the uh, expenses that she incurred. Uh, and, and I guess her action also included claims for uh, wages due her, challenging her status as an independent contractor in the uh, California uh, Labor Commissioner uh, recently issued a ruling that the driver was, in fact, an employee uh, as opposed to an independent contractor. Jonathan, I, I wonder if I could start with you and ask, uh, I just kind of summarized that, but <laughs> did I get it right? And, and tell us a little bit more about that decision and, and what its implications were. Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, you did get it right. The, um, the issue let's put a frame around it. What is the difference between an independent contractor and an employee? And, and how do you tell the difference? It turns out not to be an easy question at all. The, um, uh, the IRS, for example, has a 20-factor test, 20 different factors that are considered in determining whether somebody is properly classified as an independent contractor uh, as opposed to an employee. And those factors are used in other contexts as well. They're used in copyright law to determine, you know, whether the whether somebody whether the employer or the company owns what you've done. Are you an, an employee versus an independent contractor? And they're used in they're used by the the labor commissioner. Now, you know, why does this make a difference? Is is perhaps the the threshold question? And the the answer is that. Uh, from the you know there's for, there's two perspectives from the perspective of the worker, an employee is entitled to have the company pay uh, the company's share of social security. They are entitled to uh, be covered by unemployment insurance, uh, you know, by unemployment later if they are unemployed. They are entitled to have expenses reimbursed. They're entitled to minimum wage in general, uh, depending on the level of compensation someone's getting. Some people are obviously more highly compensated and, and, and aren't on an hourly sort of basis. But um, if you're talking someone like a driver, they would be entitled to minimum wage and, um, and overtime. Now, from the company perspective, from Uber's perspective, from the perspective of other sharing economy companies like Lyft, the main competitor to Uber, uh, runs, obviously runs a very similar service. From the perspective of companies like Instacart, you know, that uh, does grocery delivery and various other companies that are uh, attempting to be information platforms that connect end users with service providers. But, you know, really want to, these companies want to define the boundaries of the firm to exclude the worker and just be information platforms. Now, why do they want to do that? Uh, Fundamentally, if you don't have, you know, 100,000 employees, all these drivers, but instead have you know a thousand employees or five hundred employees who are programmers and so forth, you are able to be treated as an information age company, as an internet company, and the market will value you as such. The private markets and 
and uh, you know, an Uber's valuation I think is like fifty mil, fifty billion or so. And you know, ultimately, um, when these companies IPO, they hope to be valued in that in that sort of way. Uh, and that's because well, well and they also I mean it also saves them uh, the the cost of uh, employee benefits unemployment insurance and those kinds of things as well I mean isn't that part of the reason here well absolutely absolutely and those things and therefore the the profit margins that are available to these companies are the you know are the reason that they get valued in this way and the ability to scale more quickly the uh, ability to insulate themselves to some extent from liability for misconduct that occurs from time to time by drivers. You know, if a driver assaults a passenger, if that driver is treated as an employee, there's much more uh, likely to be liability found on the part of you know Uber than if they're an independent contractor. So well, for, let, me, let me bring Matthew into this, and we'll, let, let's explore yeah. some of these things. But I want to—I I just want to bring Matthew into the conversation. And, and, and Matthew, I, I know that uh, in some of the some of your writings on this, uh, you you say that Uber is primarily an information company. Uh, you know, you, you, it's not a taxi company or something. Is it fair that these drivers? be considered uh, independent contractors? Well, I think it's certainly right that uh, it is uh, Uber and Lyft are, are providing a service that it certainly competes with taxis, but it is, I think, something quite different. And and I think when Jonathan says, uh, you know, information providers or information platforms, I think that's basically right. Uh, but I also think that the way that these companies work uh, means that if they are forced to consider drivers' employers, uh, the, uh, sorry, excuse me, employees, uh, it will have a pretty significant impact on their business. Uh, that, that said, I think the emergence of the sharing economy has highlighted that maybe the existing categories we have are a little awkward and don't quite work. I mean, I think Jonathan's done a good job of uh, highlighting that it's, it's kind of complicated uh, issue as to whether you're a contractor or an employee. I, I didn't know the IRS had such a uh, long list of requirements. But uh, more and more people are going to be using these sort of uh, apps or companies in order to do all sorts of things, not just getting rides, but also uh, getting groceries, as was mentioned, or getting a room perhaps for your Airbnb. Uh, lawmakers and regulators should probably I think if they're not, if they uh, you know don't want to cripple companies like Uber, then they should come up uh, with some sort of other solution quickly. Uh, and I don't think the classic contractor or, or employee uh, designations are particularly useful here. Matthew raises a very good point, and in fact, in some countries uh, such as Canada and some Western European countries, there is a third category that sort of compromises or or splits the difference between the two. In in Canada, they're called dependent contractors. For example, um, and it's a it's a category that has some aspects of both. Now, Matthew mentions the the need for the legislature, you know, and or potentially at a national level, Congress, I suppose, to do something about this. What's awkward is that the Uber situation is that Uber has appealed the labor commissioner decision into the California court system, and I think it'll ultimately go to the state supreme court. Courts are going to be reluctant to themselves create a third category. And so, you know, as opposed that that sort of is a function that's more properly left to the legislature. So you're going to have a very difficult situation for the, you know, the very liberal California Supreme State Supreme Court that on the is going to be torn between on the one hand its allegiance towards technology and you have a lot of you have several new uh, younger Bay Area based um members of the state Supreme Court that Jerry Brown appointed governor, you know, so who are very tech savvy, most likely, 
so on the one hand, they're going to be tech oriented to some extent, but on the other hand, of course, being you know liberal democratic appointees, they're very they're probably inherently very sympathetic to workers as well. So it's going to be a very tough and interesting decision when it reaches that those levels. And, yeah, and I would I would note that in addition, there in, both in California and Massachusetts and maybe elsewhere, there have been class actions brought on behalf of drivers uh, seeking to classify the drivers as employees, not not as independent contractors. Uh, I mean, Uber Uber says, you know, look, we're we're not a transportation company; we're a technology company, and uh, we just have developed technology that that helps you know independent drivers find customers, basically. And uh, it seems that you know, given what you've both outlined about the independent contractor law, it seems that uh, the, these lawsuits uh, could pose a, a real challenge to uh, Uber's operations in those states. It absolutely could. And I think what Jonathan has uh, just discussed is, you know, worth considering very carefully because I, I don't know if we do we want to live in a world where courts uh, view their role as trying to solve awkward problems that technology has raised. It seems to me that, uh, you know, their job should be, at least in cases like this, to interpret the law. Uh, now, it might just be the case that we have bad laws uh, that aren't doing a good job at keeping up with uh, technology. So that's something that I think lawmakers are going to, to have to address. That's right. I mean, the, you know, the court, when it gets the case, you know, can't simply punt and say, well, we're not going to make a decision. So they're, they're going to, you know, perforce are going to have to decide. And as I say, I think they probably won't create a third category because that would be too much, you know, move too much in the direction of, of, you know, writing a law rather than interpreting a law. But how the courts will interpret the existing law is, uh, you know, is, is to some extent anyone's guess. And it's going to vary by state. It's going to vary by jurisdiction, you know, uh, by country. I mean, Uber operates in 300 cities and, you know, dozens of countries. And, in you know Western Europe, for example, there's obviously more sympathy, uh, you know, politically for workers than there tends to be, you know, in the U.S. There is a larger context to this that's, you know, uh, that's difficult and troubling, which is there is an increasing desire on the part of companies to you know focus on capital and on machinery and on automation and computers and the internet and downplay the role of workers. And we, we have a structural problem here, which is how do individuals survive in a world where you, know, you don't work for one company for the rest of your life, you don't have a, a guaranteed pension. Healthcare is something that we've you know, finally started to deal with with Obamacare, but it's, you know, it's controversial among you know, some folks. And that's not even to, to point out the fact that this debate about Uber drivers, independent contractors versus employees, is going to seem quaint in five years because the answer is going to be none of the above. Uber has a self-driving car lab that they've established in conjunction with Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And, you know, you're going to have the option five years from now uh, of having a self-driving car come and pick you up. And the taxi drivers who have been protesting Uber are going to find Uber drivers uh, at the same rallies as they are when they all get disintermediated by self-driving cars. Uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating concept. But what about, when we're talking a lot about the drivers, what, what about the passengers here? Uh, should Uber be responsible for the safety of the passengers in, in, in two regards, really, the safety of the passengers from 
from the drivers themselves, there have been uh, reports, you know, we've heard there are, there, there are lawsuits pending alleging assaults of various kinds by Uber drivers. Uh, and then uh, what about the, the liability issue when, it, when a passenger, when, when an Uber car is involved in an accident and a passenger is injured in some way? Matthew, I, I know you've looked at this issue a little bit. Do you have thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, so um, I wrote a, a paper at Cato about the specific issue about safety because it seemed to be one of the big issues that was raised uh, among uh, critics of the sharing economy. And uh, I suppose there are two broad points uh, that I think are worth mentioning. The first is that it's, like you pointed out, there are concerns for drivers as well as passengers. So uh, I think Uber has uh, a big and uh, major incentive to make sure that people involved um, in the people using their service are safe. Taxi drivers for, you know, uh, Uber drivers' main competitors have a very dangerous job. Uh, but I think that's, you know, they're at very high risk of uh, assault and homicides. Uh, but that's uh, oftentimes because they carry cash and the people in the cars are often anonymous. So uh, what, what makes taxi drivers appealing uh, to people who want to commit robberies uh, is not actually in play when it comes to Uber cars, where everyone has an account and, and the transactions are done automatically. Uh, now, it seems, you know, it seems to me if you wanted to uh, commit a crime in a Uber car, you would, you would have to want to be caught uh, because there's information about the drivers as well as the passengers. Uh, if you become a driver for Uber, uh, Uber carries out background checks, uh, which are oftentimes much more strict than taxi companies. Uh, and of course, passengers rate uh, drivers and drivers rate passengers. So bad drivers don't last very long on the platform. And it's not quite the same for passengers, but you might find that it takes longer for you to be picked up if you're a belligerent passenger who gets poor ratings. The insurance side of things is, has really been among uh, the most difficult and controversial. Uh, there was uh, an incident uh, years ago, or actually it might not have been that long ago, but where a uh, an Uber driver in San Francisco hit and unfortunately killed uh, a child. Uh, and what, what made this case rather interesting is that that was during a point in the ride where the driver had the app on but didn't have, uh, hadn't uh, accepted a, a hail. And so who was liable became a, an ongoing debate. And at the moment, Uber does provide coverage not just for the period when the driver has the app on and is looking for passengers, but also for when the ride is actually taking place. And some states have uh, you know, passed insurance requirements so that companies like Uber and Lyft have to have certain um, uh, certain degrees of coverage already in place, uh, but oftentimes they match what Uber and Lyft provide already. I want to follow up on that, but I, I need to take a uh, short break right now. Uh, stay with us. We're going to be back uh, in just a few moments to continue our discussion of some of the legal issues facing Uber. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. 
Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, uh, and with me today is Jonathan Handel, a uh, technology lawyer in Los Angeles with the firm Troy Gold, and Matthew Feedy, a policy analyst with the Cato Institute. And we're talking about some of the legal issues facing uh, Uber as uh, as its business continues to grow around the world. Jonathan, we were just talking about uh, some of the liability issues, uh, both on the part of passengers and, and drivers with regard to Uber. And I, I just wanted to check in with you on, on whether you had any, any perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, the sort of modern approach to liability and the sensible approach to liability is to think about who is in the best position to assume liability and to, you know, internalize these social, the social costs involved with negative incidents. And clearly the, the company that's creating the platform, namely Uber, Lyft, you know, whoever it might be, is in the best position. So it, it, you know, it makes sense. I mean, ultimately the cost gets passed on to the consumer, but the, you know, the question is, you know, in, in the, in the form of, you know, bundle in the, in the form of the, uh, the rates that are charged. But the question is, you know, how do we, as a society, make sure that these that these things are, you know, that liability is dealt with. And I think that Uber, you know, initially did not perform particularly stringent background checks, was not great on insurance, and there was pressure from, um, you know, from various state legislat- legislatures and, um, you know, some of the cities and so forth. And um, they've um, uh, changed their approach to that, and I think uh, sensibly so. We spoke earlier about, you know, the question of uh, of whether to what degree courts should kind of get involved in in creating policy around this issue. What about on the regulatory side of things? Do we need uh, new regulations uh, to address uh, ride sharing services uh, such as Uber, or even more broadly, some of the other kinds of companies, the Airbnbs and Bs of the world, B and Bs of the world that are coming up in this in this sharing economy? How should we address them? Should we, should we kind of let them uh, figure this out themselves or should governments be stepping in and trying to regulate these services? Well, you know, of necessity, there needs to be an interplay between the development of technology and the regulatory uh, regimes because, you know, by virtue of being disruptive and in particular being disruptive of regulated industries, companies like Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb uh, present challenges. In you know, in the case of Uber and Lyft, the regulated industry, of course, is the taxi industry, which, in many cities, you you know, taxi drivers need to buy medallions, and only a certain number of taxi drivers are allowed, and so on and so forth. And you know, and the value of those medallions in major cities like New York, Chicago, and elsewhere has um, you know has plunged in recent years because of the rise of Uber and Lyft. Um, been very difficult economically for for taxi drivers. Airbnb, the regulated you know situation in some major cities is is rent control and quality of life in neighborhoods and you know the availability of rental um, housing stock and uh, disputes over the degree to which Airbnb is you know may or may not be driving up rental prices and and making it harder for people to live in cities. So these these things do present challenges and you know the law evolves slowly. Politics is a slow and contentious process on the one hand and in terms of the legal the court system law is backward looking. We look to we look to precedent. 
technology is forward-looking. Technology looks to, you know, to disrupt and to develop something new. So there's an inherent tension, and it's going to be continue to be very difficult, I think. Yeah, I would I would add that I agree with what Jonathan said when you know politics is slow and technology is quick. Uh, it, it is tempting, um, understandably, I think, for uh, lawmakers to think. In, in, in something like the following way, which is, oh, there's this new industry or new technology that's come along and it's competing with taxis or hotels, so we should try and regulate it as if uh, it is a taxi or a hotel. And it seems to me that that, that might be tempting, but ultimately it's, it's not appropriate because, uh, as we discussed earlier, they're really uh, information providers, um, not actual taxi companies or hotels. Uh, but anyone who is thinking about proposing legislation about this, I think, needs to be very careful because at the moment we understand Uber as some sort of competitor to taxi companies, but it is conceivable in the future that they will become competitors to UPS and FedEx. And if you do what California has done and uh, pass a special designation for these sort of companies to call them transportation network companies, well, how is that regulatory designation going to work when Uber decides to move into the logistics industry. Now, instead of proposing new kinds of regulations, uh, you could embark on some sort of deregulation regime. You could say, look, maybe we should deregulate the taxi industry to make it easier for them to compete with Uber and Lyft. I do have some degree of sympathy with uh, taxi companies when they say, well, look, you know, for years we thought that being a taxi driver was a safe bet and we invested in these medallions and now within a couple of years all of our uh, prospects have disappeared. Uh, I imagine that's an unfortunate position to be in, but the, the regulatory response has to be very careful. Although, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know if either of you had a chance to, to read through the uh, California uh, Labor Department mm -hmm. opinion. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you probably have looked at it. But, I mean, the, the hearing officer there describes uh, a pretty high level of control uh, over that, that Uber exercises over, over its drivers. I mean, it, it's, it's hard in my mind to, to draw a clear distinction between why this isn't just another kind of a taxi company. I understand it's making better use of technology, but, but that's competition. But... Uh, you know, why, why shouldn't it be regulated in the same way that uh, a taxi company is? I think uh, one of the most interesting pieces of that opinion is, uh, and I, I apologize in advance for maybe butchering it, but it's something like Uber is involved in every part of the process. Uh, and that that was a significant part of uh, what what helped uh, form the decision. But I do think the, a major difference is the following, which is that at least rideshare drivers, uh, so that would be UberX drivers or Lyft drivers, are driving their own cars whenever they want. They don't have shifts. Uh, they don't have a boss other than themselves. It is true that Uber carries out background checks and it does take 20% of uh, the money that these drivers earn, but it seems to me at least that 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 is quite different to someone driving a taxi cab with set shifts and set hours without uh, technology involved. You know, I, I, I imagine if uh, I don't know if, if Jonathan came to visit me at Cato and I said, "Look, uh, I have a friend who will pick you up if you give him twenty bucks. Uh, he'll he'll do it." It seems to me that that shouldn't cause too much of a regulatory headache, but it's the fact that it's done through this app that is causing all these problems. It also doesn't seem clear to me that I would be, you know, uh, I suppose too much of a headache to uh, what people understand as taxi cab versus private car. But it is undoubtedly something that, you know, the court is going to have to consider and lawmakers will have to consider uh, going forward. Well, Matthew, you, you just stressed the ways in which Uber is different from cabs, but of course, mm -hmm. Uber is also very similar to cabs. You know, it is a 
service that makes cars available for hire on a ride-by-ride basis to the general public, and you can go from whatever point A to point B that you want, and you have to pay, and you pay by, by mile and by time. And you said that Uber, that the drivers don't have a boss, but in fact, that's actually kind of conclusory because in fact, Uber, you know, if they didn't have a boss, they could say, well, I'll charge you $20. Oh, I want to charge you $25, like your friend could. But in fact, the Uber drivers don't have that freedom. They can only charge what Uber says they can charge. They can't even accept tips. So, you know, what I've just done now is stress the ways in which Uber is similar to a cab. Uber is both similar to a cab and not similar to a cab. It's like an optical illusion. Is it a, <laughs> is it a, you know, is it a duck or is it a goose? It's, you know, it depends on how you look at it. And that's why Uber and a number of other sharing economy companies do present a challenge. And the courts and legislatures and city councils can't help but deal with this because the existing economy, you know, the existing structure, the taxi drive industry, the taxi industry rather, is regulated already. So it's not a question of putting, you know, should we put, you know, should we leave it unregulated or put regulations in place? It's we have a new entrant into what is currently a regulated industry. What do we do about it? And that's why it's so, you know, why it's so so challenging, I think. And of course, we haven't been talking about, you know, we've been talking about the difficulty for the taxi drivers. Of course, from the consumer standpoint, if you take UberX or Lyft, you pay less than you pay with a cab, and you you often get a better um, experience than you do with a you know with a cab. The drivers, in my experience, tend to be friendlier. Uh, they're usually knowledge pretty knowledgeable, not always. And you know, the app is is better. Now there are there are some taxi cab apps, um, Halo and Curb, formerly Taxi Magic, but you know, they have not gained the sort of traction that the Uber and Lyft apps have. So it's um you know, this is a consumer issue as well as a uh worker and company issue, obviously. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned Halo. Last I checked, uh Halo left North America and when it did, it cited the stiff competition between Uber and Lyft. Uh, it, it is, you know, the the case that uh, taxi companies could try and come up with their own app, but uh, it seems that uh, Uber and Lyft have sort of uh, beaten them to the punch there. As far as the drivers being nicer, uh, I think that might have a lot to do with the fact that uh, rude drivers on Uber and Lyft don't last very long. Um, right. They tend to get poor ratings, and uh, you get booted off uh, the platform pretty quickly. I know in some cities I've been to, Uber and the taxi cab companies are working together. I don't, I don't know how pervasive that is, but I know I was in Chicago recently, for example, and you could you could hail an Uber, and the next thing you know, a, a regular uh, city cab is is pulling up to the curb. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if that that kind of blurs the lines that much further. I guess. Well, it, it is the case. So, so where where I work in Washington D.C., you can also open your Uber app and uh, hail a taxi. For listeners who aren't familiar, when you open the app, you have a selection of options. You can select UberX, which is ride-sharing, or you can get a professional who's driving a black car, or you can also get a taxi. And, and on days that are doing promotions, you can also get uh, you know ice cream and kittens delivered. It all depends on the day and what's available in the city. <laughs> well, I, unfortunately, we're getting near the end of our time, and uh, I do want to just kind of give each of you an opportunity to wrap up the show with your closing thoughts uh, and also to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you for further information. So, uh, Jonathan, why don't we start with you and uh, get your kind of overall concluding thoughts on Uber and where we're headed with this. 
Sure. You know, I, I wish I could say where we're headed on this. I think we're, I think we're headed towards more flexibility for, for casual labor, but also more, uh, more disintermediation and, and disruption of, um, you know, of a lot of kinds of professions. And it'll be for both, for both better and worse. I mean, we live in, in interesting and challenging times and, um, you know, Uber has had, in in many ways, unlike Lyft, a very bad uh, sort of PR profile. Uh, they've been, you know, they've they've talked about wanting to set private detectives on journalists, and you know, have been sort of uh, a bit arrogant in their public persona. I think that's probably going to going to change as they continue to deal with um, with regulators. But this is going to be challenging for the courts and for regulators for many years to come, I think. We've only seen the beginning of this, and, and as technology evolves, as mobile uh, evolves, as robotics evolve, we're going to continue to see challenges for, uh, for, for everyone. You can find me at uh, jhandel.com, J-H-A-N-D-E-L.com is probably the best place to, uh, to go, and th- thanks for having me. Well, very happy to have had you here. Uh, Matthew Feeney, how about your final thoughts? So I think uh, the technology is here and it's not going anywhere, uh, but it is presenting important and interesting problems to do with regulations and the law that are going to be uh, ongoing uh, and will continue to be addressed for the foreseeable future. I do just hope that uh, people who are charged with trying to regulate whatever environment this is, keep in mind the potential for technology to change quickly and for the state of the economy to change quickly, uh, and also to keep in mind the economic potential of new and innovative companies. Uh, but as Jonathan mentioned, I think uh, you know we'll have to wait and see what, what comes out. I, I do think this will be something dealt with at the state and local level. We shouldn't expect anything federally. And we'll probably, as we often do uh, in the laboratories of democracy, get the good as well as the bad. Uh, anyone who would like to follow up with me can reach me uh, via email at mfeeney at cato.org. Or you can uh, tweet me. My Twitter handle is m underscore feeney, which is f double N-E-Y. And uh, I'd just like to thank you and Jonathan for the, having a chat with me today. Yeah, well, thanks for being here. And, and I would add, Matthew, I guess another little plug for Cato. I guess just in my own researching this, I came across a, a issue of uh, Cato Unbound, uh, a journal uh, put out by Cato, I guess, on, just online on, on mm-hmm. public policy for the sharing economy in which you, you contributed a lead essay. And there were several other essays on it that were uh, really uh, informative and interesting in terms of uh, – shedding some light on the uh, larger issues uh, surrounding some of the sharing economies. So I'm sure uh, readers might want to watch out for that. Thanks again to our guests. We've been talking with Jonathan Handel, uh, technology transactional entertainment lawyer at Troy Gold in Los Angeles and an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California School of Law, and with Matthew Feeney, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Thanks very much to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, that's another episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. We will be back next time with another interesting legal topic. Remember when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.